Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed the black diaspora in American arts, chewed over climate change, and looked into the failures of higher education. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Week in Review for October 1st, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with Kelly Grotke about her article, The Failure of Financialized Higher Ed. Grotke's research found that the big endowments now fueling colleges have made administrators more accountable to financiers than to their own universities. Administrations and trustees increasingly run their institutions as private, top-down corporations that manufacture education and student experiences. Find out more on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. As you write, alternative investments inevitably cause negative and damaging social and economic effects. If they are so damaging and destructive to society and the economy, in your opinion, why are they not being regulated? Why do we let that damage go unchecked? We saw what, as you're pointing out just now, we saw what happened here with Chicago public schools losing $50 million, having to close down a lot of schools, having to mm-hmm. have trouble with, uh, you know, they took trouble with, uh, negotiating with the teachers union. So if they're so damaging to society and the economy, why do we just let this go on? I think because we unfortunately live in a country where money is speech. You know, this is an incredibly wealthy industry. They make a lot of money, you know, and I, I, I wish it were different and I hope it will be someday. Um, I hope that if, if people realize that the systemic effects that this type of finance, this unregulated finance is having, that maybe we can oppose it. But they're very, it's very wealthy and very powerful industry. And they're going to lobby, like, you know, in, in Biden's infrastructure reform package, um, private equity is all very interested in, <laughs> and hopeful, I think, that a lot of public assets um, might get transferred into their hands because the argument, as you know, is like private interests run things more efficiently. Well, no, they don't. That's ideology. That's pure ideology. Um, And it's really destroying the quality of life for the rest of us. I think this is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? We could do better. You know, that's the thing that really gets me is that whole concept, as you were just touching on, of running anything like a business. It will be run more efficiently. It will be more effective. And it was always the pitting of government versus or the state versus uh, capitalists who can run the economy better. Why is running an university education, why is running an educational institution like a business not good for an education? Well, because I, I think it reduces education to brand, right? It, it becomes a commodity. It's, it's not something that enriches your lives, that gives you skills that you can use, um, that shows you different ways of being. Um, and it's a commodity. I mean, honestly, if you look at the Moody's higher education methodology, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, you know, I'm not against fiscal responsibility that's not the point. Um, It's the commodification, you know? Um, So basically from Moody's point of view, uh, a place like Liberty um, is about equivalent to Oberlin. They just have different 
audiences. Different people are attracted to their brand. It's a very instrumentalized view of education. You know, and fine, yes, institutions have to be, you know, run well. Um, but when you, when you only look at the, like, the money, you lose a lot. Um, at Oberlin, I think there's been um, a loss of a sense of, of community. Now, I've been in touch with some of the people who, who were let go. Some were able to take early retirement. And they talk about how betrayed they feel, you know, by the university's decision. There, there was no, even no attempt to bargain in good faith on the part of the, the institution. They just had to impose austerity, right, in order to keep Oberlin's brand alive. Um, this destroyed a sense of community. And I think that's part of education too. Um, institutions work within communities. They have ties to those communities. They employ people in those communities. It's particularly evident in Oberlin because I think, you know, outside of the college, that's pretty much the town. And, you know, the businesses that are in the town are also supported by the college indirectly because students will buy things and go to restaurants and all these things. So it's got a poverty rate of about 25%, if not higher. Um, and there's a real sense of betrayal. Like, you know, they felt the, the workers felt like they were part of a community and they just basically got kicked to the curb. Um, and this is a, a consequence of the need to impose austerity measures in order to satisfy external financial interests, right? You had to get your debt and your, your, um, tuition revenue, and all of these things have to be coordinated in way X, which is a very abstract criteria, totally, totally, um, you know, ignoring the, the particular aspects of communities, the particular ways these communities have developed over time. And again, I mean, Oberlin is a place with a pretty progressive tradition, and labor rights are part of that. And, you know, it, for me, it was just stunning. To, to see, they were going to save 2.5 million a year, right? They said by firing these workers and outsourcing them, right? They regularly pay over $3 million minimum to investment managers. And I, and you know, like something doesn't compute here, right? And when Canavan, who's the head of the trustees at Oberlin, said you have to pay for talent, he said this to a, a, a a group of faculty over a Zoom meeting, you know, when they asked him, how much are you actually paying investment managers? How much of Oberlin's endowment money is going to Wall Street? He wouldn't say. There's no disclosure on any of these things. So, you know, this is how it is at a lot of places. I don't know of any single institution that's invested in these kinds of things that is voluntarily disclosed um, how much they are actually funding to Wall Street. Now, just think, I mean, I did a, a brief look at the Ivy's 990s over the decade after the crash, uh, minus Harvard, which is a separate thing. But that was, they were paying over a decade at least $250 million in investment management fees. And according to the work of Ludwig, Ludwig Fallop, who at uh, Oxford, he's like one of the big experts on private equity, knows it really well. He says the real figure could be five times that much. 
you know, so speaking like when, when we began talking about education as a public good, right? How is it a public good when so much money, possibly a billion dollars over a decade, just from the Ivies, went into the hands of Wall Street? How does that serve anybody but Wall Street? That's money that could have been invested in education, but it's not. And as you said in, in the introduction, I mean, you know, the, the top fund managers uh, would easily be able to afford whatever tuitions ended up being. Like, say, 10 years from now, maybe they're 150000 a year. The rest of it get, uh, gets saddled with debt. You know, and, that, and that's just criminal. Um, and it, it can't be sustained. And It'll only be sustained for the wealthy. And I personally, you know, find that they're wealthy people and they do whatever they do, but we need to broaden education, make it available to everybody. And you can't do that in a system that's like sending bucket loads of cash to Wall Street all the time. It's like it's been captured. It's destroying education from within. The people who have made these investments aren't even being held accountable. You point towards Larry Summers costing Harvard a billion dollars. A billion dollars, and they knew this in a 2009 report. 2000 and, what's it, 2020? We have Joe Biden bringing in Larry Summers as an economic advisor in his campaign. He didn't get rid of Larry Summers until there was a lot of pressure by uh, self-identifying uh, progressive groups who said that they, you know, you need to get Larry Sanders out of your, or Larry Summers out of your campaign. So why are these people not held accountable? Why isn't Larry Summers' career ruined by the fact that he cost Harvard a billion dollars? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. <laughs> And, you know, I, I think uh, I, I can only guess. I mean, there's the whole thing about failing upward. Um, but I do think like we're looking at uh, we're looking at an oligarchy. Right. I mean, there's so little accountability in finance. And, and that's because, in part, there's so little transparency. I mean, I think that any nonprofit um institution um like like oberlin um and and you know public universities too that have endowments should be forced to declare how much they are actually paying in fees because that's a politically charged thing right um and i think there are also problems about conflicts of interest i mean that was quite clear in the summer's case um but this is part of the illusion that the world of finance is kind of like uh, a fact of nature, right? I, I think that's maybe where a bit of the lack of accountability comes in too, because, oh, you know, it's just the market and it goes up and down and, ooh, isn't that interesting? Um, so there's no personal responsibility because this is like a systemic thing. Um, and I, I also think that it, it, there is the oligarchic aspect. And so you, you can't, it's very hard to, to ferret out the conflicts of interest and who's enriching whom. Um, but it's clearly happening.
Lumpen's newest show, held a panel discussion at the Chicago Architecture Biennial with a distinguished group who discussed their individual histories and shared experiences as artists, directors, and producers of global stories of black life. Raisin airs the last Friday of the month at 4 p.m. When we have lost our narratives in, in, in time over that, it is almost impossible then to recognize our place in the stories that we are seeing. Until that change happens, where those purse strings are held, we can have all the Black and BIPOC artists of color in leadership positions, and they will not have the capital to do the kind of work that will dramatically change the trajectory of American theater. Welcome to Raisin, the broadcast platform of an eponymous exhibition currently held on-site at 6018 North as a partner program of the Chicago Architecture Biennial 2021. The exhibition is led by guest curator Asha Iman Veal, Alfred Landecker Democracy Fellow 2021. Veal also produces this radio cast. My name is Shannon Lin, curatorial assistant for Raisin. For this week's episode, we are glad to share an excerpt from the Community Conversation, Diasporic Theater and the Power of Black Narratives. This live conversation took place on September 16th, moderated by American Library Association Executive Director Tracy Hall. I'm Tracy Hall. I'm currently the executive director of the American Library Association, but I have worked most of my career in either arts administration or in library administration and in education. And my my moment with Raisin in the Sun I, was also to um, seeing it on television um, and, and also being raised in one of those neighborhoods in South Central Los Angeles, where as soon as somebody came into a good job or money, they were gone. I remember my best friend, my best friend growing up, her, her family won a very small amount of money um, in a lottery. And she came around the corner. I will never forget this. And she said, this is my best friend. Like if you saw her, you saw me and vice versa. She said, we're moving we're moving in the morning. And I said, moving where? And she said, I don't know, but we're moving because my dad wants some money. And I remember getting up early in the morning, um, which happened to be, um, I think it was a Friday that she came to tell me. And on Saturday, I just stood and watched the family move and um, got there just in time to see their van loaded and, and, to, and to wave to her goodbye. And I remember, um, what resonated for me about Raisin um, is that the geographies that we sometimes occupy are not our aspirational geographies, and that um, Black life is um, is circumscribed, um, um, especially when it comes to 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 money um, and and our notions of agency. And I really I remember thinking, as sad as I was. I remember being happy that they were going to move somewhere that they wanted to be. That is something that, and so I've been trying to, to follow that my, the rest of my life, which is to make sure that where I am in as much as it possibly can be is actually where I want to be. So that is my connection to, to, to the conversation today, especially as we're thinking about Black narratives. I want to just uh, think about agency in general, um, artistic agency, all of you represent that. And so I'm gonna be asking you about that. I wanna talk about spatial agency because we're seeing a lot of erosions. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about, about where we can be and, and, and that, but also to, I think, 
um, to let it rest on us that um, I think what Hansberry is saying to us is that when it comes to art, whether it is visual art or performance, um, we have to claim and demand our space. Amazing. Thank you, um, Tracy. Uh, my name is Rowan Ayende Smith. I am an artist based in London, but actually still working in Chicago. I'm the uh, um, gallery manager for a small um, gallery on the south side of Chicago called Blanc Gallery. I am in the Raisin show that Asha is, um, has curated. Um, my connection to the play uh, doesn't run as deep as, as some of you. Um, I think actually I, I, I read it really for the first time um, when, when Asha invited me to participate in the exhibition. Um, not that I didn't know about it prior to that, but it, and, and actually on reading the play and going through it, it's, it's incredible how much of it has permeated through and past the confines of the stage to a place where I felt I knew actually a lot of um, a lot of the text and uh, my work in the show um, in the exhibition is is um, and, and we'll talk more about this I'm sure later but but I'll just say this in, in this moment is specifically focused around a, a moment in act three scene two when um, Asagaya says to Benita um, and in time we will pretend very softly um, is the stage direction um, that you have only been away for for a day, and and that for me is a really powerful moment of thinking about the um, the, the way that time functions in um, in the play, specifically as it relates to the African diaspora. So, oof. so so I approached um, as 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 an artist, we we already are are, are working through our, our own sets of ideas, right? And so when um and um and Asha had seen some of my work, um, some of my performance work last summer, um, where I performed uh, parts of a body of work that I've been working on to finish my uh, thesis at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and um, the things that I've been thinking about were. And, and, and something you brought up a little earlier, Tracy, was that kind of space architecture, thinking through um, what are the architectures that shape our experiences um, as Black folk, as Black people, whether they be psychological architectures, whether they be physical architectures, whether they be, um, you know, literal architectures. And so really thinking about um, what are the architectures that have led us to this point today um, uh, and to the experiences that we have as, as a black diasporic um, continuum. Um, and, and, and so that for me, the, the kind of um, foundational architecture is um, the Black Atlantic, is the door of no return, um, which, I mean, I could go on for ages about that, but, but, but through kind of exploring that and thinking about form and how, how we might then if there was a door into this moment, then there necessarily needs to be a door out of this moment. And we have the power as black storytellers, as black makers, as black creatives to form that door. Um, and, 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 and what tools do we have? What tools do we possess to, to shape that doorway, to shape that frame? Um, which, which led me to um, an exploration actually of black holes. And so that was the that was the work that I spent um, two years at grad school thinking through was like how the black hole um, as a as a figure as a as a um, 
scientific phenomenon might be mapped onto the experience of blackness to offer up ways to think the world otherwise, to think the world outside of this world, to think new architectures, to think of the world or a world on the other side of this one. And so that was the work that Asha um, saw of mine and, and that led to the invitation to participate in Raisin. And so then when she said, I'm, I'm doing this show um, based on Raisin, for me, it was like, okay, how, how do I map these ideas um, through and in and, and with um, what, what um, Lorraine was, was working with, um, the material of Chicago, the material of segregation, the material of kind of black family. Um, and, and, and as I said in, in my, briefly in the introduction, then it became this part of this question of black holes and, and time and blackness is, is, is this question of like timelines, this progressive linear timeline that has been kind of transposed onto to the idea of modernity or progress, right? which blackness somehow undoes, undoes or is the unmaking of in the same way that the black hole is the unmaking of the universe as we know it, even though it is a foundational concept upon which the universe is founded. Uh, you know, um, without the black hole, the theory of relativity doesn't exist. And yet it breaks down the theory of relativity. Without black folk, modernity doesn't exist. And yet, black folk break down the very idea of modernity. And so I was interested in how to think about so many of the themes in, in Raisin, um, bring up this lapse um, in time, bring up these questions about the architectures that shape our experiences as black people, the architectures that shape the kind of generational lives of the younger family, um, how Asagai comes into the frame and ruptures or brings in questions around like return what does it mean to return to africa what does it mean to return to nigeria for benifa um is it possible to return there's a kind of um there's a question around that and and that that feels really important and and prescient and obviously in this moment there are dialogues around that that are wildly different to the dialogues that were being had when um Lorraine was writing that play, but it's even interesting to think about how those dialogues have changed and shaped. And so I wanted to make um, work that thought about time, that thought about how black bodies might navigate time as an architecture. Um, yes. And, and how we might produce new architectures through thinking about rupturing time in that way and therefore moving through time differently. And, and um, so, so that, that's where my work um, begins um, in, in the show. And, uh, and yeah, it was just, it, it was really incredible to read through the text um, and think about where, where those points of intersection landed um, within the body of work that I was already thinking through. Thank you, Rowan. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Josette Rochelle Mingo, and I'm the current principal for the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama here in London, which is where I am from. I first want to say a huge thank you for being such eminent company. And this I also feel as a space for me to learn and to grow. So really, thank you for that. My relationship to Lorraine really was seeing our production in the United Kingdom. Um, 
when I was quite young, and that was in 2001 at the Young Vic, and that was with the great Cecilia Noble and um, with Lenny James. Um, and I was like many in an audience just coming home. I'd never seen something like this. I'd never seen my life portrayed like this. It didn't matter that it was an African-American story. It was a story that spoke to me and to so many people around for I saw a level of dignity, I saw a level of uh, joy, I saw my community and history portrayed in a way that certainly at that time just had never been seen before. But my deeper relationship to A Raisin in the Sun was uh, presenting the first production in Sweden, which is where it was done, um, they say, before Lorraine and after. Um, it was a groundbreaking production that we did in um, with the Riksteatern, which is uh, the National Touring Theatre of Sweden. And my relationship was after the Afro-Swedish acting community read many plays, Coloured Museum, Fences, um, many others. They chose A Raisin in the Sun. I kind of knew they would, to be honest. I knew they would, but it came full circle. And uh, for the first time that play was produced and the relationship was twofold, bringing that story to the two Scandinavian public but also that story meeting, and this is really difficult. I must be very clear, I cannot speak on behalf of the Afro-Swedish actors that were involved um, particularly, but it changed the way they perceived themselves within the arts ecology of Sweden forever. I think one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of emphasize and pick up on is the, of course, the, the, the idea of the door of no return, because Raisin was that for the Afro-Swedish community. It was a place from which we would never go back to, the place before we knew of Lorraine and afterwards. And for me, the work uh, was both of agency and structure, of being able to build new structures every time the actors came on stage, every time a room shifted. And there was something that Ken spoke about, which is actually the um, secret ending that Lorraine writes. And in fact, in terms of agency, I'd like to start there, really. Um, we tested the ending on an Afro-Swedish audience we actually stopped our final public performance. We asked the white audiences to leave and thank them that they attended. And then we left all of the Afro-Swedish and people of color in the room. And then we shared with them the two endings and they were left to decide which one it was. And that was the one I eventually took out on tour. What was very interesting, and I'm gonna try not to give it away Ken and Willa because we know this, but again, at the same time, it's, it's really Lorraine and I'm just thinking about this idea of architecture and self-agency. Um, for us, it was understanding that there were two um, endings. There was the happy one and the one that was another version. And it was really condensed down into how the family discovered where they were and how the neighbors reacted. Once they've moved from one place to another, they're then standing, there's a place they would never return to again. And they hear noise outside and they understand. And this discussion between the Afro-Swedish community there, we brought together associations that weren't speaking to each other. We brought together people who were in conflict with each other. They all stayed for this piece. And it all centered on how the father, or Walter, came out to defend his family and how he held the bat. <laughs> This week on The Biden Files, the Arizona audit finds no fraud and fewer votes for Trump. The House subpoenas several key Trump aides. Omarosa wins in court against an NDA. Grisham releases a damaging memoir. 
Biden's ambitious spending bill hangs in the balance, and you are more likely to die from COVID if you live in a state that Trump won. Much more. These are the Biden Files. Day 248, September 24th. The Arizona hand recount of Maricopa County's 2020 vote, ordered and financed by Republicans, has confirmed that President Biden won and the election was not stolen from Trump. In fact, the much-criticized review showed much the same results as in November, with 99 more votes for Biden and 261 fewer for Trump. Overall, there was less than a 1,000 vote difference between the county's count and the recount. Biden won Arizona by over 10,000 votes. The recount took nearly six months and cost almost $6 million. Review officials implicitly acknowledged Biden's victory, noting that there were no substantial differences between the new tally of votes and the official count, but they claimed that other factors, most if not all contested by reputable election experts, left the results, quote, very close to the margin of error for the election. Actual election officials called that a red herring and said it was clear that the recounters actually did not know how an election works. Trump, meanwhile, issued a statement claiming the report uncovered significant and undeniable evidence of fraud. Also, the Senate audit spokesman Randy Pullen said that a report published on conservative news site The Gateway Pundit was false. A Gateway Pundit article titled, quote, Arizona audit final report was watered down, had claimed, quote, based on these factual findings, the election should not be certified and the reported results are not reliable. Pullen said that was not true. A House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol subpoenaed four of Trump's closest advisors, including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. The panel also issued subpoenas to Dan Scavino and Kosh Patel. Those subpoenas compelled the four to produce documents relevant to the deadly attack by October 7th and then sit for a deposition the following week. In a statement, Trump called the panel the unselect committee and promised to fight the subpoenas on executive privilege and other grounds for the good of our country. Trump's lawyers say he will try to shield it with executive privilege and has told the four not to appear. However, as Trump is no longer president, all he can do is delay. President Biden said he will not invoke executive privilege to shield Trump's White House records. As legal pressure increases in New York, a judge ordered the Trump Organization to submit a report by September 30th on its efforts to preserve, collect, and produce documents in response to subpoenas issued by the New York Attorney General. Quote, for more than a year now, the Trump Organization has failed to adequately respond to our subpoenas, hiding behind procedural delays and excuses, said New York Attorney General Letitia James in a statement. Judge Arthur Engeron agreed and said that if James isn't satisfied with the Trump Organization's efforts to comply, a third party will be hired to conduct a review of the company's records and respond to the subpoena. It appears that the New York Attorney General has uncovered evidence of serial and serious fraud. In a reversal, the CDC recommended COVID boosters for a wide swath of the U.S. population, including tens of millions of older Americans and those with certain medical conditions. The recommendation also includes health workers, teachers, restaurant workers, and grocery workers. In fact, anyone who wants a booster may simply be able to walk into a pharmacy and ask for one. Currently, the booster plan only applies to those who have had the Pfizer shot. Texas abortion providers returned to the Supreme Court and asked the justices to take another look at their challenge to a state law that has effectively banned abortions in that state. The law was explicitly designed to evade review in federal court. By a 5-4 vote on September 1st, the court refused to block the law, citing the, quote, complex and novel procedural questions it presented. 
But in the new filing, the providers asked the court to grant immediate review of the core issue case called certiorari before judgment. This procedure is rarely used and it is typically in cases involving national crises. The providers argue that this is a state crisis and that women in the state of Texas are being injured as a result of the new law. Day 249, September 25th. The Biden administration proposed a federal rule that would modify DACA in an effort to preserve and fortify it against future legal challenges. The rule change comes after a federal judge in Houston ruled the program was illegal. The proposed rule relies on the Obama administration DACA guidelines and embraces the consistent judgment that immigrants who arrived in the U.S. as minors should not be a priority for deportation. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in a statement that, quote, only Congress can provide permanent protection for dreamers. Trump, of course, tried to terminate the program in 2017. The Supreme Court blocked that. A former Trump White House press secretary accused Trump of abusing his staff and making sexual comments about a young female press aide. Stephanie Grisham, who is famous for never holding a televised press conference, said Trump constantly berated her and made outlandish requests, including one demand that she appear before the press corps and reenact a certain call with the Ukrainian president that led to Trump's first impeachment. She did not do that. Quote, I knew that sooner or later the president would want to me to tell the public something that was not true or that would make me sound like a lunatic. Grisham adds to the well-known and inexplicable love for Vladimir Putin, recounting a meeting where Trump told him, quote, okay, I'm going to act a little tougher with you for a few minutes, but it's for the cameras, and after they leave, we'll talk. You'll understand. Grisham also noted that an advisor, Fiona Hill, asked me if I had noticed Putin's translator, who was a very attractive brunette woman with long hair, a pretty face, and a wonderful figure. She proceeded to tell me that she suspected the woman had been selected by Putin specifically to distract Trump. Grisham also said that Trump's unexplained visit to Walter Reed was for a colonoscopy without anesthesia because temporarily assigning power to the vice president would have been, quote, showing weakness. Grisham also writes that Trump once called her from Air Force One to inform her that his penis was neither small nor shaped like a toadstool, as Stormy Daniels had alleged in her 2018 book. Grisham said, um, okay, Mr. President. In the oddest moment, Trump's handlers apparently designated an unnamed White House official known as the Music Man to play Trump his favorite show tunes, including Memory from Cats, that would bring him back from the brink of rage. Trump said he still wants to force Republicans to pay a political cost for failing to help him overturn the election. Quote, the people of Georgia must replace all the rhinos and weak Republicans who made it all possible, said Trump at a rally in Georgia on Saturday. Trump called Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the Republican who refused to help him find enough votes, incompetent and strange. And he also called Georgia Governor Brian Kemp a complete and total disaster on election integrity. Day 250, September 26th. Senate Republicans blocked a spending bill needed to avert a government shutdown this week and a federal debt default next month, moving the nation closer to the brink of fiscal crisis. A Thursday deadline is now looming to fund the government. Republicans who had voted to raise the debt cap by trillions when their party controlled Washington claimed that Democrats must shoulder the entire political burden for doing so now, given that they control the White House and both houses of Congress. However, the move may tip the nation into recession, a particularly cynical move that appears to be the beginning of a vicious new politics. The United States experienced its biggest one-year increase on record in murders in 2020, according to new figures released by the FBI. Some cities hit record highs. Overall crime statistics are lower, but the rise in murder rates in cities such as Albuquerque, Memphis, Milwaukee, and Des Moines tracks closely with the pandemic. 
and Representative Liz Cheney said that she was wrong to oppose same-sex marriage, reversing a long-standing position. Cheney famously came out against same-sex marriage in a television interview in 2013 while running for Senate in Wyoming, saying she believed in the traditional definition of marriage. Her sister, Mary, is gay and married with children. She said at the time that, quote, Liz was on the wrong side of history. And in fact, her father, Dick Cheney, the former vice president, became an unlikely advocate for gay rights when he stated that, quote, freedom means freedom for everyone. Day 251, September 27th. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, defended his actions, insisting that calls to his Chinese counterpart and a meeting in which he told generals to alert him if Trump tried to launch a nuclear weapon were all part of his job duties as the country's most senior military officer. Quote, I firmly believe in civilian control of the military as a bedrock principle essential to this republic. Milley furthermore said he was actually directed by Mark Esper, then the Secretary of Defense, to make a call on Halloween to his Chinese counterpart because, quote, there was intelligence which caused us to believe the Chinese were worried about an attack on them by the United States. Milley also addressed a frantic phone call with Speaker Nancy Pelosi two days after the January 6th Capitol riot. A transcript of that call said that the general agreed with Pelosi's characterization of Trump as being crazy. Later that afternoon, he said he called the generals involved in the nuclear process to refresh them on those procedures. In an unintentionally funny interchange with Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Milley acknowledged that he spoke with a series of authors who have recently written books about the final months of the Trump presidency. All of the books present the general's actions to check Trump in a favorable light. General Milley replied, Woodward, yes, Costa, no, when asked if he had spoken to The Washington Post, Bob Woodward, and Robert Costa for their book, Peril. The general added he has not read any of the books. At that, Senator Blackburn asked him to read them and report back to her about whether the books accurately portray his actions. Day 252, September 28th. President Joe Biden canceled a trip to Chicago to promote COVID vaccinations in order to try and broker a compromise with two moderate Democratic senators threatening to sink his economic agenda. Biden met with Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in an attempt to salvage the two infrastructure bills. Sinema and Manchin have been unwilling to agree to the top-line cost of a proposed $3.5 trillion education, climate, health care, and tax plan until a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package first passes the House. However, House progressives are demanding that the Senate pass the $3.5 trillion bill first before they'll support the infrastructure proposal. Speaker Pelosi, meanwhile, held out the possibility the House could delay a vote on the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, accusing moderate Senate Democrats of completely disrupting the timeline for approving Biden's economic agenda. Manchin, meanwhile, released a statement that suggests an agreement on the budget reconciliation package isn't close, saying, quote, I cannot and will not support trillions in spending on an all-or-nothing approach that ignores the brutal physical reality our nation faces. Meanwhile, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot issued 11 more subpoenas to organizers of the pro-Trump rally outside the White House that turned into the riot. The committee is now seeking communications between the Trump White House, associates, and organizers of the Stop the Steal rally, as well as Trump's actions before, during, and after the riot. Day 253, September 29th. President Joe Biden's ambitious social plan hangs in the balance as a fractious Democratic caucus will vote on a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill this week ahead of a $3.5 trillion spending bill. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is now gambling that progressive lawmakers who have long warned they will not vote for the infrastructure legislation unless a separate and expansive bill moves in tandem will blink. 
Democratic leaders must keep all their senators united in favor. They can only afford to lose three votes in the House. But so-called centrist Democrats are balking at the size of the second package, despite the fact that it has appeared to be fully paid for and amounts to less than a percentage point of total U.S. spending. There has been a massive lobbying effort against that bill, which by both corporations and the ultra-wealthy as the measure would mildly raise taxes on both groups. The Koch brothers are also waging an effort against it. They have been flooding the zone with dark money. Stocks crashed yesterday with the S&P seeing its worst day since May. The trigger for the sell-off was a rise in the yield in the benchmark 10-year Treasury note, sparking a bond sell-off. Tech stocks tumbled precipitously. Influential Senator Elizabeth Warren mounted an attack on Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell for his financial regulation track record and added she would not support him if the White House renominated him. Powell, whom Warren called dangerous, had been a bipartisan choice. His tenure at the Fed ends in 2022. Top U.S. military officers acknowledged publicly for the first time that they had advised President Biden not to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan ahead of what became a chaotic evacuation. General Mark Milley said that they had advised Biden not to withdraw, but also acknowledged that Biden had the final say. Milley also acknowledged the collapse took top American commanders by surprise. And the litigious ex-president lost in court in an effort to enforce a non-disclosure agreement against Omarosa Mangold Newman, who wrote a tell-all book about serving in his administration. The decision cannot be appealed and sets a binding precedent. Mangold said in a statement, quote, finally, the bully has met his match. She will also collect legal fees from the Trump campaign. In a statement, Trump said nothing about the case and instead attacked Omarosa in personal terms. Quote, I gave Omarosa three attempts at The Apprentice and she failed. At her desperate request, I gave her an attempt at the White House and she failed there too. People truly hated her. Her book paints a picture of an out-of-control president in a state of mental decline who is prone to racist and misogynistic behavior. Newman's book also casts the former president's daughter Ivanka Trump and his son-in-law Jared in a negative light. When Trump advisors tried to cast doubt on her accounts, she released audio recordings that backed up several of her claims. Barack and Michelle Obama broke ground yesterday on their legacy project in a lakefront Chicago park. The site of the new Obama Presidential Library, near the Obama family home and where the former president started his career on the Chicago South Side, officially began last month. Work on the Presidential Center is expected to take about five years. Local residents have protested that development, claiming it will push residents out of the neighborhood. Days after a South Dakota agency moved to deny her daughter's application to become a certified real estate appraiser, Governor Kristi Nam summoned to her office the state employee who ran the agency, the woman's direct supervisor, and the state labor secretary. Nam's daughter attended as well. Cassidy Peters, who was then 26-year-old, ultimately obtained the certification in November 2020, four months after the meeting at her mother's office. A week after that, the labor secretary called the agency head, Sherry Brand, to demand her retirement. According to an age discrimination complaint, Bren then filed against the department. Bren, who is 70, ultimately left her job this past March after the state paid her nearly a quarter million dollars to withdraw the complaint. Day 254, September 30th. Democrats in Congress moved to avert a looming fiscal crisis, scheduling a House vote to raise the debt ceiling and preparing a separate spending bill to halt off a government shutdown that will take place at midnight today. Republicans are expected to support it after Democrats removed a debt limit increase that the GOP refuses to back. However, legislation to raise the statutory limit on federal borrowing, which is on track to be breached by October 18th, if Congress does not increase it, appears to be stalled. That legislation needs 60 votes in the Senate due to the filibuster. 
And a Trump donor has accused one of Trump's longtime top aides of repeatedly groping her and making unwanted sexual comments at a Las Vegas charity event last week. Trishel Odom said that Corey Lewandowski repeatedly touched me inappropriately, said vile and disgusting things to me, stalked me and made me feel violated and fearful. First-hand witnesses at the event corroborated her allegations. Odom's husband, John Odom, said that he wanted accountability now from Lewandowski and they're exploring their legal options to make sure he cannot harm anyone else. Separately, South Dakota Governor Kristi Naim dismissed a conservative media outlet's claim that she is having an extramarital affair with Lewandowski, calling the rumors, quote, total garbage and a disgusting lie. In American counties where Trump received 70% of the vote, the coronavirus has killed 47 out of every 100,000 people since the end of this June. In counties where Trump won less than 30% of the vote, the number is 10 out of 100,000. These are the Biden Files. Brian and Jesse chatted with the curators of Earthly Observatory, Giovanni Alloy and Andrew S. Yang. Should we be more depressed about the accelerating climate change or optimistic for human potential in a time of crisis? Learn more at Bad at Sports, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. And we are uh, here talking about Earthly Observatory, uh, the new exhibition up at um, the SAIC uh, Galleries. And uh, curated by Dr. Giovanni Aoli and Dr. Andrew S. Yang. Andrew and Giovanni, welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So um, this is a huge kind of sprawling, like large group show looking like, what, 30, maybe 40 artists uh, really confronting these sort of really large ideas from a bunch of different perspectives. Uh, And so just maybe to give uh, a... uh, insight or a point of entry for our audience, maybe just if you could kind of give a base description of if people head out to SAC galleries, what's sort of the initial experience that they're going to have walking in and kind of taking in this exhibition? Yeah, well, when you walk in, uh, you'll might turn to the left instinctively because there'll be a huge ultra stretch horse skeleton sort of spanning uh, one side, and then you'll quickly turn to the right and see a mannequin staring at you with a net about to catch you in its grip. And so those are uh, sort of two artworks in the street level gallery that that gallery is called Conditions of Representation. And um, that's a work by Zoe Strecker called Breeders' Envy, the horse, and then um, another piece by Mark Dion, which is uh, the entomological endeavor at the Smart Museum, a piece he did back in, I think, 2005 down at the the Smart Museum. So those are probably the very first thing that you'll definitely notice. Yeah, it's it's quite impactful. Uh, there's a um, sort of surprise factor, and uh, those pieces draw us in in what the subject of the exhibition is, which is a consideration of observation. How do we create knowledge of the natural world around us, but also the interconnectedness between us and the natural world. So the um, street level exhibit is very much focused around the notion of natural history and what has been visible to natural history across time and what artists can enable us to see instead through their reconfiguration of natural history methodologies. Excellent, excellent. So so um, that's, a, that's a huge kind of topic, kind of in many ways a topic that's sort of relevant in the entire course of art history mm-hmm. uh, and relevant to so many different kinds of practices. So I guess 
um, maybe sort of why now and and why this exhibition in this way? Like what made you made this one come into fruition? Well, I think in part, um, Andrew and I have uh, shared the interest for nature, science and natural history for a long time. And uh, we come from slightly different backgrounds. Um, Andrew is a scientist by training and an artist by trade. And uh, I have taken down uh, different paths in terms of um, writing, curating, making. And I, I think our perspectives are very much aligned despite the, the different origin points of our interests in nature and, uh, and our um, research paths. There's uh, an underlying love for natural history methodologies and, and the subject and an understanding that we both share that whatever we see, it's never a um, clear and non-political um, process, that our view, our vision, what we see and what we say are linked in ways that exceed our, our understanding of individual journeys and that ultimately that's where important contemporary nodes, cultural nodes may be entangled. If we think more carefully and more critically about what we see and what we can say about what we see. So natural history can become a, a metaphor to the ways in which we create knowledge more in general about ourselves, our surroundings, and how we navigate the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I would say that top street level definitely has the, the works there have a sense of natural history. But back to your question, Brian, then about sort of why now, um, you know, I would say that we're living in a moment of exceptionally unnatural history, right? I mean, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, um, the likes of which no one living has ever seen. We're in the midst of, you know, uh, very extreme sort of climate change uh a regime, you know, under which we've been told we have like only certain number of years before we sort of bake in changes for the upcoming centuries and in unforeseeable sort of generations. And so I think this sort of natural history, unnatural history is part of also our interests. You know, we've um, the the significance of what we consider natural or unnatural or human or non-human. I think like all of these have never been more relevant in terms of like really thinking through different kinds of questions. And so you see the horse and you're like, oh, there's something really kind of humorous and striking about this literally sort of stretched limo thoroughbred. But then you also see these other works in that gallery. There's one, a video that's actually not quote unquote an artwork, but like a one of these videos from the New York Times from their, their pop uh, and culture critic, um, Shane O'Donnell and Hess about the pandemic. I think that piece is called, um, Let's see. Oh, I'm watching these pandas having sex. I've never been so happy. And it's sort of uh, her unpacking the experience of watching all of the sort of social media pandemic nature genre through our phones and, and other things during this sort of period of the anthropause, right? Period where somehow humans suddenly vacated, of course, urban areas. And now humans, or sorry, animals were allowed to sort of take back what was theirs. And it's the piece is a really interesting sort of critique of like, are we actually interested in that? Uh, are we really thinking about nature? Or is it another way to sort of think about ourselves as a metaphor for our own exile? You know, is there something really dark about it in terms of thinking about sort of eco-fascist tendencies to want to like 
destroy ourselves because, quote unquote, we're the virus, right? And so a lot of different things, I think, come into that street level gallery that way where you have the history of natural history. You have things that really present themselves as um, taxidermy or wunderkammer. We have some wonderful paintings by Peggy McNamara, who's a scientific illustrator at the Field Museum. Um, but then you have things like that video. <laughs> you have um, uh, another work. Uh, I mean, Giovanni might want to talk about the work of Cole Swanson there too, but things that really sort of throw, I think, a little bit of a curveball to, the, to the, the standard notions of what you would consider natural history now. Yeah, and we can say, I guess, um, quite confidently that the, the street-level galleries are very much uh, designed to unsettle notions of anthropocentrism and make, to make us think, you know, the works are gathered together to make us think about our position as observers and how that has dominated our centrality, how that has informed our centrality over time. So, for instance, Cole Swanson, who's a uh, Toronto-based artist, has produced these beautiful miniature paintings of cow hides that are held down to a board in the style of uh, entomology collections with pins, subverting the scale of the animal's skin to a, a minute object and displaying it in a way that natural history doesn't normally uh, contemplates, creates that shift, ignites that shift in which we find ourselves wondering how uh, the ways in which natural history has represented animals uh, over time and also plants has informed this objectification that ultimately defines the way in which we think about the natural world. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Um, so let me talk about what passes as, uh, as math these days. Uh, the first one uh, is, of course, imagining equations. So in these, in these, uh, in these broken, uh, uh, shred board, shredded up math programs, one of the things that they focus on is imagining equations. So teachers will ask students to picture an equation, spin it around in your mind, touch it. And that's the class. Where does solving it come into this? Oh, it doesn't. They solving it. They've never. They don't even know what solving means. Oh my god, it's it's horrible. It's it's, it's really frightening. Horrible. It's so, frightening. So that's what we get. So that's what we get in primary school. Uh, a little bit further up, the math programs that they have in schools these days, they they cut out math entirely. Now they have classes like riddle analysis. And what does that mean, Kai? What does riddle analysis mean? Well, you know a riddle, right? I've no. I, I have. I know one or sort two. Of like a, a logic puzzle sometimes there's a funny aspect S to it something that a sphinx might offer you perhaps exactly. as you're going on a spirit quest exactly so these kids these days they're not even answering these riddles instead of doing math they're just analyzing the riddles they're looking at the it's basically an english class at so that point is this so in in the sense of using formal logic you know using logical notation that sort of thing no they're just like underlining they're just underlining parts i think oh my god there's a subject and a predicate to the riddle it's really unfortunate it's so much worse than either of us could have possibly imagined exactly and then you sometimes you know parents will, will have their kids come home and talk about the box method on their homeworks the box method this the box method that what what is the box method this is the insidious thing. It sounds mathematical, but what the box method is, if you hear your kids talking about the box method, that means their teachers are putting numbers in a box. Students pull out those numbers randomly, and if they can a identify those numbers, they pass the class. Oh, my God. Oh, my goddess. Oh, my gods. It's unbelievable. Absolutely and the, unbelievable. And the final one is probably the most insidious. They try to pass this off as science. That is number theory. 
the, Come on, everybody. The redheaded stepchild of all of the mathematical theories. We know what numbers are. They're right there. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.